Turn with me to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark 15, verse 33. We'll read on through verse 47, which is the last verse of the chapter. Mark 15, 33 through 47. Beginning to read then with verse uh, 33 of Mark 15. Hear now of the word of the Lord. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone, let us see. If Elijah will come, take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out, like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the less, and of Joses and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before um, the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was with himself, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoned, summoning the centurion, he asked him if he, had been, if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought, he bought fine linen, or uh, then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses observed where he was laid. May the Lord bless uh, this reading to our good understanding today as we, as we um, cultivate the word of God at this point. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might rightly understand thy word, that we might rightly divide it as we exegete it here this morning. We pray, O oh Lord, that many of these things are so common to us that their, their commonality sometimes insulates them from our perception or our appreciation. We pray that thou wouldst not allow that. We pray that thy spirit might strive against any spirit of dullness, deadness, and bring our attention to that which thou hast written. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Mark in this passage uh, focuses on the death of Jesus. And um, I focus on the, uh, the noun there, death, because uh, this is Mark's focus. Mark's gospel is shorter than uh, Matthew and Luke's. Uh, Mark has a tendency to go right for the heart of the matter. And Mark has, from the very beginning of his gospel, Mark has focused on the drama that was being worked out between God and the devil, between God and man. We think of how uh, almost immediately in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus goes into the synagogues and begins to preach, and almost without variance, there are devils that are called out of the audience, heretofore not bothering anybody or unbothered themselves, but now in the presence of Jesus, they cry out because they are so agitated, because Mark understands the spiritual battle that is going on on this earth. And we, as we come in to listen to these sermons in this modern day, we are often half asleep ourselves. We do not see the drama and the struggle at hand. We don't approach that our lives like that. We tend to forget that these things are not just issues of theology or history or things that are popular with us because we're a Christian church. But these are things which detail this, this uh, deep graphic struggle between good and evil in this world. And Mark, as he, as he has this mindset about him, which is, which is so given to the bare bones and to the, 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 the raw struggle that's going on, uh, the graphic powers that are wrestling together as he does this he focuses here on the crucifixion on the death of Jesus Christ violent and bloody as it was he focuses on the death of Jesus and not his many sayings the one saying that he does bring forth is this quote uh, from Psalm 22 which came from Jesus lips my God my God why hast thou forsaken me that itself epitomizes the drama of Jesus' struggle there upon the cross. This Jesus who had not uh, known a moment of distance between himself and the Father from the time of his incarnation until now, because of his immense intertrinitarian love between Father and Son and Son and Father, now, because he has taken the weight of the, the sin of the elect upon his back, he senses a separation, which is alien, which is new. An abject alienation between the person of the Son and the person of the Father. So he cries out. And this is, what, this is the, the sentence that John focuses upon. Now I want to define, divide the text that we have before us between the death of Jesus, the, 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 the fact of the death of Jesus, and then the effects of that death as we see laid out here in the text. So first of all, the main issue, that is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not just a sorrowful death. It's not just a death which it, it brings forth or elicits our pity or our sorrow or our sadness. Death is not a pretty thing, but this is not a death like that. This is a death 
which accomplishes everything in terms of the creation in terms of the creation whatever you like about the creation if you like the beauty of it if you like the liveliness of it the vi vivaciousness of the creation of birds that can chirp and sing and make song whatever you like about it the creation was overturned and was under judgment ever since Adam and Eve's fall and the coming of Christ is like a mighty invasion by the powers of the divine to take back uh, this creation whose um, outcome was in the balance. Satan was claiming it as his own. He seemed to have won the struggle. But in the coming of Christ, we have uh, a mighty invasion uh, that does not, but it's not made up of the fourth, the, the legions of angels or the legions of the armies of the Christian kingdom. It's made up of this one man, the Messiah, the Savior, who comes to do by himself what mankind could not do. They namely save themselves or redeem themselves or work out the terrible predicament that they were in. And so. This death of Jesus is no uh, is not without tremendous drama and significance all by itself. When Jesus asks in the <clears throat> in the thirty fourth verse, he quotes when he cries out with a loud voice, he's on the cross. It was the sixth hour. He'd been uh, he'd been on the cross now for three hours. Since about six, uh, since about nine o'clock in the morning, now it was about noon, and uh, at that time he cries out with this loud voice. He's he's already nailed to the cross. He's already hanging. His lungs are already burning from the weight of his body, and the muscles again working against each other so that he would finally suffocate. That's how crucifixion killed a person. But at the ninth hour, about noon, he cries out. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, now, we, we ask, uh, <clears throat> why would Jesus ask this question? Uh, did he not know anything about what he was doing? Did he not understand the task at hand? Why did he, why did he ask the Lord, uh, Father, Father, or... or uh, Lord, Lord, why hast thou forsaken me? This is a rhetorical question for our benefit. I mean, he cries it out out of his existential sense of separation from the Father, but it's a question that reminds us. It's a question that calls our attention. Why has this come to be? Why has this happened? The answer is plain. It's the crux of redemptive history. It's the crux of our redemption. It's the essence of why uh, our Lord has come, and it, it summarizes the beauties of Psalm 22, where it begins with the idea of crucifixion and ends with the idea of resurrection and endowment. And so it, it's, a, it's a question, uh, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a question. And it's important for us, it's, it's good for us to think about this, because we think, we, we, so, it's, we so easily think 
of the death of Christ as merely a theological idea. And our minds are so, we're so facile at relegating theological ideas to sort of a dark room in our minds. Oh yeah, it's theology. But then, you know, tomorrow I have to go to the grocery store and my children are sick. And all of these things, you see. Jesus calls us to consider, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Why? Why is, why did Jesus need to die? Why is he dying here in the text? Why is this a graphic cry? Jesus is hanging there. He's dying. He cries out, quoting from the text of the scriptures, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So God wants us to meditate upon this. Uh, he wants us to think about it. Just recently, I've had a number of deaths that I have attended at the hospital. You know, my job is mainly to go into the hospital in the worst cases. You know, the other chaplains get to minister to people when their uh, uh, when their the, when their outcomes are more in the balance. I usually get called at night. I'm the nighttime chaplain on call. I usually get called when people are gasping for breath. When their strength is almost gone. And it's not a pretty sight. Because as I look at these people, I see them with all of the potential that they have had in their lives. All of the, all of the strength that they have exhibited. But now... They lay upon the pillow. And oftentimes it's a case where the hospital, the doctors, the nurses, the family have used extraordinary measures to keep their family members alive. And now either because of brain death or because there's, there's uh, no hope uh, of, uh, of a physical healing, they, uh, the question is asked, do we want to maintain the, the suffering of these people by the medicinal measures or the pharmacological measures that we're applying to them in their lives. And the decision is made, no, we're going to, we're going to withdraw these measures. We're going, to let them, uh, we're going to let them survive on their own now. Now we're placing them in the hands of the Lord. And very often when that is done, um, within a very short time, I see as I'm, Embracing these people and trying to encourage them, I see their loved ones drift away. It's so wonderful when there's faith involved. Oh, so wonderful to know that as death pursues their loved ones, that the door is opening on the other side and they are ready to frolic in the, in the arms of God's strength. As soon as their eyes close here, they open on the other. That's so wonderful. But, but make no mistake about it, when our eyes close here on this side, it is not a happy thing. And um, you can look at yourself, you can look at yourself in the mirror, look at yourself in the mirror, you see all this vivaciousness, this joy. Yes, you can frown, but you can also, you have the power to smile. You have the power to call upon your soul for courage, to live another day, to do the tasks that God has given you to do. You have that power. But when your eyes finally close, all power is gone. All power is vitiated from you. And uh, all that remains there is the husk that you've been wearing in the last um, years of your life. 
And it's not a pretty sight. And that's that's what Je that's what Mark is trying to convey here. Now, um, the human wisdom, in terms of Jesus, says, "No, don't let Jesus die." We have some people in our presbytery. I'm afraid who would have called. Oh, it's not nice for Jesus to die. It's not loving. We need to interfere here a little bit. We need to make things more soft and more kind than they are. So we see here that when Jesus cries out in verse 35, that then someone, it says, ran and filled a sponge with full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink as for relief, saying, let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come and what? And take him down. You see, this is what human wisdom thinks. Take Christ down off the cross. Don't let him die. But divine wisdom says no. My beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, the righteous one, he must pay the penalty for my people, for all the sheep that are the sheep of my pasture, the sheep that I am going to save even unto the uttermost. He must die for them so that they can live. Without his death, there is no life. And so this death is graphic and it's powerful. And uh, it deals with the acrid, acidic cause of sin in this world of ours. <clears throat> we see then uh, the uh, Mark's sober observation, verse 33, that the darkness came and it covered the land. We don't have any geological, uh, atmospheric analysis of that day, what happened, but we do know that the day got very, 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 very dark because the Son of God was dying on the cross. And God wanted us to see and understand the cosmic dimensions of messianic death. This was not just the death of a man, uh, even a, a good man, even a nice man. This was the death of the Son of God. This was the death of the Messiah who had been promised. So this was a death. It was a, it was a full death. It was a, uh, it was a stinking, foul, putrid, festering, rotting flesh death. But Jesus was willing to do this, and he was in the pro and Mark is reporting on that in this part of the gospel. We cannot minimize the death of our Lord Jesus Christ by relegating it to a theological idea or just because we're familiar with it. It's, it's so easy for us to, to do this, but it's not allowed. And Mark would hold us back from it. Now, because of the reality of Jesus' death, we see the effects of it almost immediately here in the text. The effects of Jesus' death as he died. In, uh, in verse, 30, uh, verse 38, as he dies... The veil is torn uh, in the temple. Now the veil stood between the Holy of Holies, the, the presence of the Holy God as he manifested himself in the heart of the temple. Uh, it was a barrier between men and God because God in his holiness, men in their sin could not bear the presence of the Holy God unless God by his grace allowed it. But in this case, the veil is torn. 
It's a, it's a violent action, but it's a violent action of grace, showing that now the way is open, uh, that, that we can have true fellowship between ourselves as sinners and this holiness of God. People are so afraid of the holiness of God that they mince and dice the theology of God. They, they minimize the Lord in terms of his power, in terms of his wrath. They do anything they can because they're terrified of the real God. They attack the Orthodox and mince uh, the, the, the definition of God that the Orthodox would put forward. They do everything they can to minimize the power and the holiness and the righteousness and the goodness of God because all of that, they're afraid of that coming and crafting them in their sin. But in this case, the veil is torn, showing that now there's an opening between uh, us and the Lord. I'd like you to look at the verbs here. The veil is torn. And then I'll argue here that the centurion is saved in verse 39. There's a centurion on guard in verse 39. And it says, when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. A centurion is like like, an, like a lieutenant that makes his way through West Point or the Naval Academy. He's a very important man in the Roman army, high rank, had tremendous authority, commanded a hundred men in in, uh, in the uh, the legion. And this centurion, we don't know anything about him really, but we do know that you didn't become a centurion by sloughing off or pretending. Uh, you could. Your, your life was in the balance. If you disappointed Caesar, you could be taken out uh, at the speed of light. The centurions did not play games. So here's a centurion. He's in charge of guarding the crucifixion of Christ. He's, he's observed these things. He's been there for hours. And when Jesus cries out, and when he, he sees that Jesus has given up uh, the ghost, as it were, <clears throat> um, he he testifies, he confesses, truly, this man was the Son of God. And undoubtedly, this centurion took up his place in the fellowship of the saints. Undoubtedly, he made his way, he found his way to the believers. Questions, intelligence, whatever, and as he, as he joined the fellowship of the saints, he rejoiced that he had been a centurion in the Roman army. He'd been there when Jesus died, and he saw the power of righteousness in this man as his life left him in his death. So we see the veil is torn. We see the centurion is saved. And what, well, how is he saved? Well, he's saved on the power when Jesus died. And when Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, he opened up the doors for grace to pour forth. And this man was one of the first people, one of the first recipients of that grace. It's, it's wonderful. We see in verse 40, the veil was torn, the centurion was saved. We see the women observed. The women observed. There were many women, it says. And uh, it just reminds us of how there were these godly, there was this godly sorority of women that were touched by the life of Jesus. 
the moment we talk about women in this world, uh, we talk about sexuality and sexual attraction, marriage, the giving of marriage, temptation, adultery, all of these kinds of things. And yet, in the life of Jesus, there was never a hint of anything untoward or even creational in the good sense of Jesus never was was torn with wanting to marry one of these women. Jesus was uh, was set, and uh, the, te- the the scripture text just does not broach that subject as if it were a real issue with our Lord Jesus Christ. So these women observed, and they in verse forty they observe what's going on. <laughs> There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and Joses, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee. Now these women, and it says many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So there were many women in Israel who did not have the power or the authority of men, but who were touched by the integrity and the sincerity and the and the the the, uh, the virtue or the uh, the ethical spiritual power of Jesus Christ, and so in this case, they had tra- they had um, traveled from Galilee, these northern regions. We don't know. I'm, I'm sure there were many women here. Many came. Many came together. You know, would you come with me? Can would you come with me so we can go to Jerusalem? Some were more intimately related to the apostles, to the disciples at this point. But nonetheless, there were many women who were there. And so the women observed what was going on. And uh, they became the, the core of faith for the new church when it was raised up on Pentecost. Uh, we see in verse 43 that Joseph of uh, of Arimathea was embrazened with courage. The veil is torn, the centurion saved, the women observe. Now Joseph is encouraged and strengthened. It's really remarkable that in the in the in the moments, within mere moments after the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, there was this high prominent man of the council of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea. It says, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was one of those faithful people who saw through all of the artifice and all of the hoopla and all of the fakery of religion in that day. He was waiting. He was like John the Baptist's parents. He was waiting sincerely and honestly for the coming of the kingdom. He sees Jesus and he sees Jesus crucified. How can Jesus be the Christ if he's crucified? Well, if you rightly understand Isaiah 53 and passages like that, then you understand these things. And Joseph of Arimathea, on one hand, he was a member of the council that had crucified Christ, but on the other hand, he was sincerely looking for the Messiah. And he sees all that's happened. And he steps forward on threat of death himself and goes forward to Pilate and asks for the that he might take care of the body of this one who has been condemned and shamed and all of the kinds of things that we're doing to each other today and in silencing each other because we've committed these supposed cultural sins. We 
we see how the hatred of a whole culture can come upon people for false ideas. And there was no more false idea than that you'd honor Jesus who had been crucified. But Joseph of Arimathea steps forward and asks Pilate if he can have the body. So I see, I see Joseph of Arimathea embracing again by the power of the slain Christ. I see verse 44, I see Pilate convinced. Again, another verb. Pilate is convinced of the death of Christ. There are people today that debate, want to debate this. They want to be Johnny come lightly and argue that Jesus never really died. Well, Joseph comes and asks for the body. Pilate is not going to just release a body. He, he says he's dead already. He's incredulous that he has died so quickly from the crucifixion. The Romans like their, like their crucified people to, to wait for days on the cross publicly and be scorned and, and uh, symbolically uh, abandoned and, and uh, held under the contempt of the society for as long as possible. But here Jesus, under the weight of sin, has died rather quickly. So Pilate calls the centurion to come in and, and uh, he gets the report and he releases the body. You know what that means? The centurion said he's dead. Pilate is convinced because the centurion knows if Jesus is taken, if the body is taken away and then Jesus shows up a couple weeks later, the centurion is dead. So either or. Pilate is convinced. So uh, this refutes all frauds involving the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and the absence of a resurrection. It refutes them. Uh, then lastly, Jesus is honored by burial and the stone is rolled against the door. He's, he's honored by taking, by receiving the grave of, of Joseph. This, he's a rather wealthy man. So it's, it's, a, it's a grave of some honor. So Jesus dies in dishonor, but immediately, because of Joseph, he receives honor. Dear, precious, sweet honor. And he receives a place to be laid. And then Mark closes out his, his story here by saying that the stone was rolled against the door. The door was slammed shut because Jesus had really died. He'd really been killed. And um, so we, we categorically reject uh, all deniers and scoffers and liars and satanic attempts to play around with the idea that Jesus did not really die. No, Mark says here he was dead and buried. It was an issue of finality. Um, but with his death, you can live. And again, I want you to think. I want you to conjure up in your mind's eye. We're all alive today. But I want you to conjure up in your mind's eye your face dying. Now, is your this face that's dying... The, the strength that's leaving the face, the, the, the brightness that's leaving your skin, is that face, uh, has that faith been, has that, has that face been made alive by faith? Because uh, the New Testament says that if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we have died in him. We've already begun to live again. The first resurrection. The spiritual resurrection is at work in us even now. 
But I want you to cultivate, I want you to think about your own life. Right now, you may be full of energy. You may be a young person. You may be one of our children in the church. You may have all the power at your behest. Your whole future lies out behold you, before you. You don't understand that tomorrow you could walk out and be hit by a truck or fall or something else terrible happen to you. Most of us who are older have seen this. We've seen it happen to friends. The president of my class in high school, he was a honor roll, handsome, had all the girls. Became a helicopter pilot in Vietnam was killed in the first three months of duty over there. These things can happen in this world of ours. We have no power to save ourselves. But in Christ's death, we can live. In Christ's death, we do have power. With his breath, we breathe. With his breath, we can see beauty and uh, all of the glories of, of life. With his ruddy with his ruddy face, the face of the Son of Man, and his willingness to face life, we can see the green pastures in which he, she, uh, which he shepherds us. Uh, we, can be, we can be fat and happy sheep because he died for us with his death. So I want you to conjure up your own death. The Bible says, for it is appointed for all men to die once, and then comes judgment. Conjure up that death. See your face. And then see your faith. And know that death is not the end for you. But life everlasting. Let's close. Our Father and our God, we pray that Mark has not labored in vain in his study of death. We pray that he has not, that he has not put forth words on a page that we can relegate to some non-entity, some unconscious quality like theology that makes no difference in our lives. But we pray that his words will be blessed by thy spirit, O Lord, and made powerful that we might see that his death was real and necessary and that by his death we can really have life and that everlasting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.